Welcome once again to Watershed Writers, the radio documentary series and podcast that features writers creating literature in the Grand River region in southwestern Ontario. We record on the traditional territories of the neutral Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples, and we are dedicated to bringing you stories from writers from diverse backgrounds. On this program, we read books written by local writers and talk about all kinds of subjects. Our slogan is, listen local, think global. This is season three of Watershed Riders. I'm your host, Tannis McDonald. Francis Riley is the show's producer, and John Roscoe is our technical producer. We are pleased to be partnered with the wonderful folks at Midtown Radio in Kitchener-Waterloo, and you can catch past episodes, including all of seasons one and two, on the Watershed Riders account on SoundCloud or on Midtown Radio's account on Spotify. Now let me ask you. What do you know about the Edna Stabler Writer-in-Residence program? This program invites a working writer to Waterloo every winter to put on literary events at Wilfrid Laurier University, to offer workshops and guidance to local writers, and to generally stir things up in the way that Edna Stabler did. The program is generously funded by a bequest by the late, great Edna Stabler, who understood the importance of these kinds of opportunities to a writer's life. Previous writers and residents have included fiction writer Carrie Ann Leung, poet and novelist Gary Barwin, creative nonfiction writer Emily Urquhart, and the poet Sonnet LeBay. Novelist Donna Morrissey has been chosen as Wilfrid Laurier University's Edna Stabler Writer-in-Residence for the winter 2023 term, and she will be our guest on Watershed Writers today. Donna Morrissey is the award-winning author of six best-selling novels and a memoir. Her work has been translated into multiple languages, including German, Swedish, and Japanese. Her Sylvanus Now trilogy, about a Newfoundland family fighting to stay afloat financially and emotionally in a turbulent century, has received broad critical acclaim. And in fact, the trilogy's final volume, The Fortunate Brother, won the Arthur Ellis Award for Best Crime Novel in 2017. Donna's memoir of the writing life as it emerged from her Newfoundland heritage is called Pluck, and it has been reviewed in the Globe and Mail as a book that, quote, pulls back the curtain on working-class life. Her new novel, My Name is Rowan Genge, is slated for publication in 2024, and during her term in Waterloo and Brantford from January 18th to March 24th, 2023, Donna will be working at the intersection of fiction and memoir as she transforms a series of family stories into a novel. Now, Donna lives on the East Coast, but she is relocated to Waterloo Region for the duration of her residency. And I'll bet that Edna Stabler, whose first major publication was an article on East Coast fishing culture, is smiling down at Donna. You'll have your first chance to see Donna in person with her public talk, which is called Finding a Way, a Journey of Self-Discovery. And it will be all about how Donna makes personal connections with culture and story. That talk, which is open to the public and free of charge, will be held on the Waterloo campus of Laurier in the Hawk's Nest at 7.15 on Thursday, January 26th. So save the date. But now, please welcome to Watershed Riders, Donna Morrissey. 
Welcome, Donna Morrissey, to Watershed Riders. Fun to be here. It's lovely to have you, and we're welcoming you not only to Watershed Riders, our radio documentary about uh, about riders and our podcast, but also to Waterloo County. I know you visited the area before, but you're coming here for a very special reason this winter. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Well, I'm very excited. The last time I came, the only time I've ever been to Waterloo was for one day. My memory of it is all of these quaint stone houses, because in Atlantic Canada, we have clapboard and all of these flat lands in between little communities. And uh, we don't have too many flat lands in Newfoundland or, or in the Maritimes, you know. So that's my impression. And other than that, it's going to be brand new for me. To be a writer in residence there, that's... Uh, it's going to give me so much opportunity, you know, to immerse myself in your culture and to see what you have and to share what I've learned, you know, about creative writing. It's my passion. So uh, you are taking on the position of the Edna Stabler uh, Writer-in-Residence yes. at Wilfrid Laurier University starting January 17th and going until the end of March. So that's a, you know, that's a couple of months in this, uh, in this yeah. culture and in this place. So I'm thinking of this as a kind of workation and making that up from vacation and, and, and work so because you're here working uh, on your own writing of course mm -hmm. as a, a writer in residence does but also meeting with people from the community to talk about writing to talk about what, what you just said is your passion and to lead workshops see what other people are writing comment on on uh, their works in progress can you tell our listeners who may be unfamiliar with what a writer in residence does you know, how you uh, work with people from the community. I will be holding office in the university for at least two days a week. And, and that will be an opportunity for students, participants, you know, to come and uh, meet with me personally, one-on-one. -on -one. And we can do things, you know, I can review, uh, critique a piece of writing that they've done, uh, give advice or guidance and uh, share some of what I've learned. What I really like doing is holding workshops because that gives me a real opportunity to interact with people. And I just find that I've just got so much to share. I look at it as a big box of tools, you know, creative writing, all of these settings and scenes and memoir and, and mood and metaphor. There's just so much to focus on when you're writing a piece. Creative writing workshops gives me that ability to be able to, you know, expand upon ideas and thoughts and for others, you know, to practice the concepts. And so that's, that's a lot of fun. So between those two interactions, you know, that takes up quite a bit of time. Yeah. And plus, I think that the um, university has some community outings as well. So that would be really interesting to get a chance to look at Waterloo and your culture. For sure. And uh, I want to make sure our listeners know that you will be giving a public talk uh, to which everyone is invited on a Thursday January 26th at 7 p.m. at Laurier in the venue known as the Hawk's Nest. I'm going to uh, repeat that information a couple of times uh, during our episode to make sure that everyone knows that they're all welcome on January 26th to your public talk. That'll be the first public event you're doing as our, our writer in residence. And I know that you have titled your talk, Finding a Way, A Journey of Self-Discovery. I'm interested in this idea of the local, in this idea of what a way is, both as a place and as an attitude, right? 
uh, Watershed Riders is all about looking at the local in terms of our of being in Waterloo County and and, you know, being outside of a major center right outside of Toronto, outside of Montreal, outside of Vancouver, where it's very common to think that literature exists. So we're outside of that. And I okay. know that you, being from the Maritimes and being originally from Newfoundland, are interested in the local, right? And uh, we're interested in this kind of secret life of writers who live outside the big city. So can we talk a little bit about the values and the, and the difficulties of looking closely at the local? In Newfoundland, uh, the culture is just so uh, strong and so... We truly are a distinct society down here. So the challenge for me with my writing is getting outside of the culture because everything is so, I'm so immersed in it because I spent my growing up years in this old time, almost like Sophia toned, uh, you know, community. And so for me, getting out of it is, is challenging. And people often say to me, you know, why don't you write a modern story? My stories are modern. I just see them through a certain perspective. The challenge for me is getting out of culture. So to see culture somewhere else, yeah, that is a challenge. You know, it can be very elusive. When I went to Alberta, for example, I was looking for the oil field and that culture that accompanied it because I set one of my novels there. So when I was in that vein, you know, of people, of voice and language and talk, I was I found my feet and I was able to write from that perspective. I have to go back on that comment. Uh, someone said to you, why don't you write a modern novel? <laughs> <laughs> what? Right. What? Um, but what a picture of the novel that the modern means urban and the modern means, I don't know, does it mean a, a big city? Because there are plenty of uh, small towns and small communities that are you know, living in the contemporary moment. Because but... <laughs> it's all about voice. You know, it's about the Newfoundland voice. It's the voice of a community, the voice of a group of people, the voice of a, a family. So when we write, I mean, we write from our voice. So mine is that mixture of the Newfoundland culture, the my family, and um, just everything that I've witnessed in my 67 years. It's kind of interesting, you know, uh, growing up in a place gives you such a sense of intimacy with it that I think those 16 years of just being totally immersed in that culture of very little incoming influences, it feels like everything that I've experienced since I left that, I've not really absorbed, you know, I, I still see everything through these, this color, the, as I said, sepia tones. It's interesting to think about what is voice. What is culture? What is the modernity? What, you know, where do we come from when we tell our stories? So voice is everything. It's so important. When I think of uh, you know, how much the past has uh, influenced uh, what we write, I always think of Faulkner, right? And his great thing, the past isn't over. It's not even past. It's, it's so much present, right? And one thing you're going to find in, in Waterloo region is that there's actually a lot of people from Newfoundland here. Kitchener and Waterloo are twin cities. Kitchener's a big claim to fame. It's big uh, economic drive was, was factories. And so many people came from Newfoundland to do factory work here and moved back and forth and still do move back and forth between Newfoundland and, and here. We'll see if we can't find you some um, Newfoundland people while you're here. I, I know for sure uh, Heather, Heather Smith, who's a fantastic YA novelist, would be uh, very glad to meet you. Heather, are you listening? I'm ringing 
bringing Donna over to you in a little while. Now listen here, Tannis. I'm coming to meet you and your culture. Don't stick me in Flanders. <laughs> okay, oh, well, we, we'll have time to do both because you're here for a couple months. So thinking about culture and the local and this, your work with the sepia-toned past, I want to uh, move into some discussion about your latest book, which is called Pluck. A Memoir of a Newfoundland Childhood and the Raucous, Terrible, Amazing Journey to Becoming a Novelist. It's called Pluck, and it's not a novel. It's a memoir of your childhood uh, until the publication just before the publication of your first novel. So I have to ask, why a memoir now? Was this a book that was a long time in the planning, like something that you thought of writing, but the novels had always taken precedence? From the moment I started writing right up till now, there's never been a plan. There's always been this whatever inside of me to tell this story. It it was like one big accident, you know? (laughs) Like Kiss Law came to be through extraordinary circumstances, and that's mostly documented in novel Pluck because I ended it with the publication of my first novel. But, you know, I told all of these stories. I had so many to tell about my family. We've suffered so many tragedies. And um, I see stories in everything. All of these events, that everything I've witnessed, everything I've experienced, they went into the novels. And the novels came one by one by one, all individually. When I was finishing one, another one would be like in the tube waiting to come. And it would kind of be linked to the one that I just wrote, you know? It would kind of be linked to it in a way. I was telling my own family stories, but I was telling them in fiction. And then after I wrote uh, The Fortunate Brother, I, I felt like I had my stories told. I felt like they were all told. But I never had my mother's story told. And I didn't have my insanity, my my drop into that dark place. I didn't have that told. and. So it's like I had these huge stories that somehow couldn't find their way into a character. And so that's when I thought, maybe I'll just write about it. When I found myself to that point where uh, all of my stories were told, but yet none of them were able to convey exactly the very things that I wanted to tell, you know, but mm-hmm. my brother and my mother and uh, my experiences. And uh, so that's when I mentioned a uh, memoir to Penguin and they were all over it. It was like, oh, this is the year of the pen- of the, of the memoir, you know. So actually I sat down and, and I, I wrote it so quickly. I was just waiting for the pen to bring it into, you know, being. You know, I'm interested in that idea that you've told all your stories and yet you had these other things that you may or may not have been thinking of as stories because they were things that happened to your family, which could be told in story form, but it takes that shift to thinking of it as stories first, right? So in some ways, you know, I keep thinking of Pluck, this book, as a response to people who may have been asking you, how did you become a writer, right? Because so much of it logs everything that happens before you become a writer. So it's like a formative journey, right? The kinds of influences that that made you a writer. And it, it includes things like the books and the films that you saw, the people you met, uh, what was going on with your family at the time, uh, losses, gains. Uh, you, you mentioned a, you know, a struggle, a mental health struggle. So all of these things are formative 
to being a writer, whether you've been writing about them or not, right? And I, I think too, you know, I hear this question all the time, how do I become a writer? That's when people say, how, do you, how did you do it? Because the veiled question is, how can I too do it? And I really liked all of your inclusion of working class culture and saying, look, it's not about having the right kind of family or the right kind of education. It's about having the burning need to tell story and valuing what goes on in people's lives and thinking that's worth telling, that's worth bringing to the eyes of others. What do you say to people who ask you that difficult question? When you're telling a story, it has to be focused. Just in a memoir or fiction, the story has to be focused. It has to be focused around something. You can't just start talking a memoir randomly putting things down. Like, for example, let's focus on the memoir. When I started this book, my publisher said, we want to know how did you become an international translated author? You coming from an isolated community, how did you make that? How did that happen for you? So I have my stories to tell. So I know how to weave a story. And so that was a good backbone. How did that happen? So I focused my story immediately up on my first movie. You know, the fantasy, what that did to my psyche. I can remember my first Dr. Seuss. I can remember my first child, you know, first movie, first everything. So it's wrapping everything that was fanciful, creative, Wrapping all of that around that backbone of how did I become a writer? And then weaving in those different parts of the stories that I wanted to tell, like my mother and her fortitude through suffering and pain, and my brother and the family, and how we all were drawn towards this point where my brother got accidentally killed on the job in Alberta, which destroyed our family in a lot of ways and led to a breakdown in me and led to so much. But all of it was like step by step by step, pushing me here, pushing me there, and weaving my way through this ending where I finally went to university. And out of that came connections. And out of that came the point where I was met somebody who thought I had a voice and encouraged me to write. The major point being, everything is interconnected and everything is focused. So, for example, if I wanted to write a book about an abusive relationship, if I wanted to write about Donna Morrissey and her abusive husband, or make that too, I wouldn't start with creativity and the joy of my first book and the first movie. I would start with my mom and my dad, their relationship. Was it loving? Was it uh, violent? What was it? How is it that I went from this beautiful, loving family into living with a jerk who was abusing me? You know, what? Because there are building blocks towards that. It don't just happen. What was my attraction? And so that then would be the aim and focus. And that would be a totally different book than the one that I wrote about creativity and becoming an author. And they probably would have very few short stories interconnecting them. So we have so many stories. We have so much to tell. So when you're writing that memoir, it's about what is the story that I want to tell? And maybe you've got to sit and write for six months before you figure that. Before, oh, this is a strong point. This is where my energy is coming from. You know, and you discover what is the heart of my story. I didn't know when I started it that it was 
the heart of my story, which is the main theme, would be about the, the strength of my mother, her fortitude, and how she somehow passed that on to me, you know, and how that fortitude got us through some really dark, dark nights. I really like that idea that, and I've been reading a little bit about this, and uh, uh, there's been a real conversation among uh, memoirists. You were talking about your um, publisher saying this is the year of the memoir. Although, of course, memoirs have been around for uh, before that, but you're right, there's been a kind of surge in the popularity of the memoir. And I've been listening especially to female memoirists saying there's more than one story of a life. So just as you said, said this is the story of uh, burgeoning creativity and forging a life um, in uh, the literary arts. And there's another story uh, about, a, about a marriage. And there's a third, a fourth, and yes. a fifth story. But, you know, it's a feminist issue, too, right, for, for this. It's that, you know, a man can write you know, six memoirs and no, nobody doubts that they're all worth it. But a woman writes two memoirs and so, there's someone going to say, hey, which one's the truth, right? And it's like, well, they're both the truth. They both have different, you know, different spines or different intentions in their stories, right? You know, one of the things that uh, really startled me uh, was after I wrote Pluck and I gave it to my family to read before, you know, we I went further into publication with it. And after my brother read it, he called me and he said something that, oh my God, it's just touched my heart so deeply. He said, I wish I'd done more with mom. I was like, how could you have done more? You paid the mortgage and the rent. You brought food to the table so that me and my sisters could sit at home and deal with our mother. Without you raising the support, we couldn't have, we wouldn't have had shelter. Point is, is that when you write a memoir, you take ownership of the story. In the future, talking with people, I would say to them, you know, you you forewarn your sister or your brother or your mother that this is your story told from your perspective. And so it's going to be about you. It's going to be about them in some degree, but it's going to be about you. And as a matter of fact, after my brother said that, we all got together after the publication of Pluck and we were sitting back home. We we're all drinking and playing guitar and yakking. And my brother started telling these stories about dad. You know, about rabbit, snaring rabbits, moose hunting, skidooing, and stories about other things as well. And I realized that I didn't have their stories. I didn't have that intimacy with our father as they had. Just like they didn't have that intimacy with our mother that we had. But you know, so there's different stories, different voices within one family. So this is why I'm so looking forward to come to Waterloo because I'm going to be focusing on those stories of my dad. I mean, that's a very good point too i mean that um and sometimes too in our families we are divided uh, gender wise right that the girls spend more time with the mother yes. and vice versa or you know or anything but anyway some siblings spend more time with one parent than the other for a variety of reasons and so that's your work in progress right you're you're working with the stories that your brothers have told you about about your dad is that right yes and is your uh, idea to, to write absolutely another memoir? Or are you working with thinking about the intersection there between fiction and memoir? Brand new grounds here. I am taking uh, memoir and converting it into fiction. Because what I found that as I'm starting to write, I don't have that big heart as I did with my mom or with a novel. Like there's not enough of a punch. So... I have to strengthen it 
So I may have to fictionalize it to give it more of a hoof, you know, so it's more of a read, keeping the flavor of the book, keeping my brother's stories, their voices. And um, yeah, as opposed to three boys and a father, there might be just one boy and a father and that boy might be written by me. You know, I might be the boy. So fiction just gives you so much room to maneuver and and make stories work and create. Because, you know, one of the things that, uh, and I don't know who said this, but he was brilliant. He said that um, fiction tells more truth than memoir. And what he meant by that is when we are writing fiction, you know, we're drawing on the archetype. We're drawing on the purity of behaviors and actions that we've been like formulating and living and creating since we were going back for generation after 6,000 years, 10,000 years. So we are coming from these patterns of behavior that in fiction, we can draw more readily from. People relate to it. We all relate to the sister archetype, the mother archetype, you know, or the trickster archetype. So sometimes in memoir, where you're trying to stick more closely to the events of your family, that might get a bit foggy, you know, and perhaps you might be a little more careful before you attach any kind of a label or certain behaviors onto your sister, you know? So fiction allows you to go more probably closer to the truth than memoir does. I mean, I love that, that paradox, right? The, the fiction is a lie that tells the truth, right? That, yeah. that gets at the, the larger truths, right? Now, early on when we were um, talking about this interview, um, Francis Riley, our, our producer and I were talking about the fact that the book is called Pluck. I we talk about synonyms for pluck. And I said that in Finnish culture, there's a much discussed and highly desirable trait known as Sisu, S-I-S-U, Sisu. And to have Sisu is to be, to have fortitude and determination. And it's very much admired in Finnish culture. Mm-hmm. And Frances said, since she was brought up in the UK, um, the word that she would have heard for this is gumption. So we've got all these, these kinds of uh, yeah. words for, um, for uh, endurance and and creativity and vibrancy and endurance. But I also think there's a pun here, right? Pluck. And the cover of the book shows a fishing hook that is being pulled up, pulled upwards, right? So I kind of thought about that idea of being plucked up. You know, and I thought of, of how you position yourself in the novel, the character that is you is sort of plucked up by the hand of fate that by things that happen and things that form you. So what do you think? Is that too fanciful an idea? No, it's the idea that my culture sold to me because the first thing I said to them was, uh, well, I want to pluck as in grit, you know, like grit has been used and um, the only word left for me was pluck. And I, and, I, and it came out of the book, you know, this woman said to me, I, you got pluck, girl, I'll give you that. I always stuck in my mind, pluck, and I've always, you know, the brazen one type thing. So pluck was definitely the word because, again, they wanted one word. <laughs> it's a challenge. Sure. <laughs> you know, sure. So pluck was it. And I'm thinking, I don't want that pluck, you know, as in plucking chicken feathers, you know, be careful of that, you know. Jesus, if they didn't come back with a pluck, a whole plucking house. And my thought was, no, no, I don't want that. But the instant I saw it, I was struck by, number one, I just thought it was a beautiful cover, but I was struck by the house dangling by the hook. And it was, you know, I'm getting emotional here. It was so symbolic of my house, uh, a house in distress. 
and, and then it was a house in distress and uh, and and plucked we were plucked out of the norm of our lives by the hand of faith you know and the hand of faith is a bloody hook and it pierces you and so well, when that struck me it, it is speaking to me on such an emotional level that i guess it's right well, and it's, you know, it also shows that that it takes more than one person to make a book that yes. uh, becomes a kind of cultural object out in the world, right? You just can't be locked into your own head. You've got to trust a good editor, a good reader. You've got to trust others. You know, you've got to get out of ego and be open because that synergy comes, you know, what creating when I'm talking to my editor and she's talking to me and she's saying, no, Donna, no. And I'm going, oh, yes, yes. And she's going, here's why, Donna. And I like, okay, I'll try and listen. And I listen and it's going, oh, you're absolutely right. You got to be open because editors, other people, they'll push you to be better. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, um, I know. I, I often talk to writing students about that, and they say, "Well, you know, what about well, you know what about editing? Is is it terrible?" And it's like, it better not be terrible. No. <laughs> it better be a moment where two two people, two or more people, if you have an editing team, come together to say, "This is for the good of the book." Right now, yes. it's it's off your desk, it's off your computer, and it's out in a little bit of a way in the world because it's gone to these trusted other readers. Uh, but it's not yet public and you're still yes. working on it. Right. Yeah. So I love that. I love that story that the, you know, that the one word title that was hard to come up with, but um, ultimately serves many parts of the book, yeah. many, many threads. Now, uh, I wanted to go back to something you said about thinking about your first books and movies and how they awakened you to the possibilities of storytelling through, through these mediums. I'm always interested in hearing that people don't necessarily have highfalutin um, influences that were influenced as much by uh, a Dr. Seuss uh, book or hearing uh, that a favorite relative will will recite, etc. Right? You know, whenever I hear someone say, "Oh, I was influenced by uh, Citizen Kane," I always want to say, "Oh, you were not. You know, that wasn't your early influence. I want to hear your early influence." I was very glad to see you talking about what it was like to come from a community in some way, those encounters were limited until something happened in, in the community. I really like those films that are being shown in your aunt and uncle's house. I think influences are what we turn to once we've learned our craft, so to speak, or, or, or helps us with the craft. And in the beginning, you have to have that word inside of you, that feeling. And the only influences that really really inspire me is that situation I'm watching unfolding or this process happening inside of a person I know of going from being asleep to slowly being awakened or or she's falling to sleep because she met some guy and now she's about to sign off on everything these are the things that inspire me you know the the raw the what the real what I see you know, outside of that, it's like, oh, God, I want to tell that. Like, I, I want to get that into a story, you know. Uh, I, now, people will tell me their name, like Sylvia Gunnery, and I'm going, Jesus, what a name. Can I really, can I steal that? You know, and... Uh, wait, wait, what's the name? Say it again. Sylvia Gunnery. <laughs> Sylvia Gunnery, okay. Yeah, Annie Black, you know, these names that people tell you, they just capture the imagination. They're such incredible names. The beginning is that story itself that somebody is inspiring within you. But what really inspires me to create 
so, you know, something pretty around the story. You know, the language is, is music. I listen to, you know, the lyrics of a song because they speak so metaphorically. So I don't read poetry. I'm not, a, I'm not into poetry. I, I just can't get there. But listening to music, like, um, oh gosh, I can't pull a name because then it could be just lying on a radio. could be something I'm just listening to. And they'll sing a song and the line would be so metaphorical or so symbolic that it gives you a goosebump. It's like, geez, I, I just want to go home and fade that down, you know? And so that's where I go to the greats. That's where I go to Faulkner or Hemingway or George Eliot, my absolute goddess. And uh, I go to these people, like Cormac McCarthy, He's, he's, a, he's a word genius. And Joseph Conrad, I mean, he's written three books about the ocean. He didn't use the same adjective twice. And I think English was a second language or third. You know, so now these people, these are the ones I go to now when I'm looking to create a story around the ocean. And they will influence me, not my story. They just can't influence your story because your story has to come from you. No, but they can influence how you put your words to paper, how you create, how to get out of the box, you know? I mean, there's only so many ways you can say, oh, the ocean was rough today. The lots were going up and down, you know? But when you read a little bit of Joseph Conrad, you suddenly are saying, you know, the boats rose on a swell and slipped sideways into a dip with a note, blah, blah. You know, you learn how to create language or to create imagery through words. And uh, that's where I become inspired, not by the story, but by how to tell it. Right, by matters of craft, right? Yes, yes. And that's the stuff you can teach. Isn't this some great writing talk? The ideas are flying fast and furious. If you want to hear more after this episode is done, I want you to consider yourself cordially invited to Donna's public and in-person talk to kick off her residency. That's going to happen on January 26th, that's a Thursday, at 7.15 p.m. The title of Donna's talk is Finding a Way, A Journey of Self-Discovery. She'll be speaking at Wilfrid Laurier University in the venue known as the Hawk's Nest. That's located on the top floor of the Fred Nichols Concourse. The event is free, live, in-person, everyone welcome with masks encouraged. Again, that's January 26th at 7.15 p.m. But now, back to my conversation with Donna Morrissey. We've been talking a lot about craft, and I love that, but I also want to hear uh, you read a little bit from Pluck. Mm -hmm. Will you do that for us? I'm going to read a little piece. It's a piece for my mom. It's time to cut her hair. She has been doing chemo, you know, she's been fighting breast cancer. And uh, there's a moment where the three of us sisters are in a bedroom and we're about to cut off my mother's hair because she's losing it. And it was just so important to all of us. And this was such a moment that it stayed with me. And uh, I'm going to read you that, okay? So my mother sat dully in the chair Karen had set up in the middle of Wanda's bedroom. Karen wrapped a towel around Mom's shoulder as Wanda and I perched on the bed, fidgeting. Hair. It is everything. It is a woman's cloak. It is her brooch. 
her favorite color. Her hope for a better tomorrow once the perm has set and the rollers are out. It is a woman's armor. Snip, snip. A piece of mother fell to the floor. Snip. Another piece of her fell. Karen's fingers trembled and a lock of hair she'd lifted slipped from them. She lifted it again, awkwardly holding the scissors for a better angle. Snip. Snip. I felt faint and lay across the bed. Wanda, holding a multicolored silk scarf in her hands for mom to wear afterwards, quivered as though frightened with each snip of the scissors. And mother's face was pinched now, as though she sucked on something sharp. And I turned away, looking through the window at a bird fluttering onto the windowsill. Snip, snip, snip. Oh, Mom. Karen ran her hand tenderly over our mother's scalp. Here, feel it. It's right smooth and warm. It looks just like Sean A. O'Connor's. Who the hell is that? said Mother. Her gumpy tone belied the softening of her mouth as she brushed hair off her shoulders and a snippet fell onto her foot. She nudged it off as if it were dirt. And Wanda half sobbed, and Karen spoke hard through trembling lips. She's the most beautiful woman in the world. That's who she is. That's not good enough for you now, is it? Yes, mine now, said Mom. And she sounded angry. And I knew she needed anger just then. She needed it as a crutch as she rose from her chair and started towards the mirror on the wall. Her eyes were sooty dark against the pallor of her skin and the weight of her scalp. Oh, please don't look, I pleaded silently. Please, Mom, don't look and see the brick and mortar of your worn down house. Don't see blood and skin over bone, but hear instead the beating of your heart with its primal rhythm, heralding your entry into time and waiting now to herald your return home. Your bald head and crippled arm and shorn chest are nothing compared to your humble, true self. The self that will forever resonate through the hearts of those of us who love you. Our mother stopped before the mirror. She emitted a small gasp, and she stepped back as though the sight were too much. Then she turned towards us, uncertainty clouding her eyes. Well, I guess I'm still the same old bird, I suppose, she said. Just lost a few feathers is all. And Karen laughed. And I laughed, and Wanda gave another half sob, and Mom pulled a scarf from her hands. Give me that, it covers my head. It's Ferris. Donna, go get the car. We goes and buys ourselves a wig. You know, the whole thing about the hair and the, and the women's armor and the, the naked beauty of the head, but, of the shaved head, but how that it does and doesn't fit with our idea of what a woman looks like. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you for that. So that's from Pluck, uh, Donna Morrissey's memoir of a Newfoundland childhood and the raucous, terrible, amazing journey to becoming a novelist. I want to ask you, since we're talking about female figures, uh, certainly your mother is a central figure and in many ways your your sisters move in and out. Um, but I wanted to talk to you about or ask you about 
the inspiration that you got from meeting your elderly neighbor who lives across the street from you, and also about an early mentor that didn't turn out to be everything that you thought. So let's let's talk about your elderly neighbor first, because she was the inspiration for a couple of characters in your novels, yes. right? Very first one. She she as it goes right back to what I was saying about the story comes first, and I was now uh, you know off the streets and in that dark hole that I fell into, and I was climbing my way, you know, into a form of sanity. And in university, and we were doing this course on needs versus wants in a social work course, and the elderly, and should we keep them in a home or should we? let them stay in their own homes and I was watching this drama play out with this neighbor across the street May you know she was absolutely the most beautiful creature she was in her 90s and she had a house filled with cats and people were trying to get her out of it and it, I, I just watched it and I watched it unfold over a period of a couple of years that was my first inspiration really to write I tried to write the short story for that and uh, it didn't quite go there and when I seriously started writing it started becoming so much more bigger than a short story of eight pages. And uh, it just kind of leapt into a longer story and a longer story. I had no idea what I was doing and what I was writing. But eventually, through the process, you know, she became the inspiration for that story. But by the time the story finished, she wasn't even a part of it. She became a cat that she was uh, nurturing Again, I wrote another story called The Deception of Libby Higgs, where I wanted to tell her story, you know, and I went back and brought her forward, the beginning of that story, and then she had her own novel. So this was a 90-year-old a woman across the street who had probably grade three education, and uh, I'm in the university girl, and I'm looking at her, trying to understand her, and write her story, and I don't know who taught who, because I got uh, two novels out of that elderly, wonderful wonderful woman you know did she live long enough to to see the first novel oh no i you know that was one of the most horrible stories where i had to leave and when i went back six months later she didn't recognize me she had gone into her dementia and uh but i got her story she lives in she's immortal in my heart yeah. yeah and she lives on she lives on in livy higgs and of course yeah. in that in that cat that's very important in, in kids law yeah yeah yeah. And with the other one, you know, uh, the the mentor and, you know, this, uh, she came into my life at a, at a point when I'm growing more and more conscious because, you know, growing up on the beaches and all those stories that I saw and going through that dark place uh, where after my brother got killed and the, and the horror story of that. And then my mom and, and the, um, I, saw, I call it the insanity that I sank into that black hole, you know, of anxiety and fear and um, PTSD, I now know was a diagnosis of it. But you know, um, this woman came into my life after that, or while it was still playing itself out, at least a PTSD. And so, you know, through her, I started learning, becoming more and more conscious of the story within the story or of the whole and of how we fit into the whole. So, you know, I'm, I'm reading stuff now. I'm reading young. I'm reading um, stories like Margaret Lawrence, where I'm looking at how she told us. So, you know, she was a mentor. And no, she did not turn out to be everything, but she wasn't needed for everything. You know, people come to us in our life and we don't know what gifts they have. You know, we just got to know which ones to open the door to and which ones to close. And we got to know when to close them sometimes. 
sometimes. So she she gave me so much in terms of enlightenment, uh, knowledge, uh, how to think, how to read a story, books, resources. Oh my God, she was wonderful. Greatest storyteller that I've ever met, you know, and I learned so much from her and I learn from everybody now. I just learn from everybody. I'm going to be learning from you, Tannis. Well, maybe we'll see. the town. (laughs) We'll see if I've got anything to teach you. (laughs) You already have. (laughs) Now, you are the recipient of many awards for your novels. Yeah. And um, I'd be interested to hear your take on literary prize culture. Right. It's sometimes a very hotly debated kind of area. Let me tell you this. Okay. Awards are fantastic when you're the one who's nominated. And when you're not, they're shit. (laughs) Quite frankly. Oh, it's so biased. Oh, it's so political. Oh, it's so this, it's so that. So this is what awards are. It's the most wonderful thing in the world when you're the one who's nominated. Yes. And then the process is completely just and fair. (laughs) And your book is won because of its merits, period. Of course. You know, let me tell you this about awards. Um, I was on a on the Governor General Award Selection Committee once. And uh, there were three others of us. We each had a short list of 10. So that's 30 books. Okay. Three different people, one award. We came in with a long list of 10 each. At the very same time, the Giller was being judged by three judges. And they came out with their long list of 10 or 16. I'm not sure the number. Let me tell you this. There was not one book on those lists that made all four of the list. (laughs) Not one. Now, there were books on my list that were on the Giller, books on the Giller that was on somebody else in my committee. You know, there were books that are written, but there wasn't one that hit all. So from that experience, I learned the diversity, the diversity of writers, incredibly, usually different stories we have to tell, the diversity in judges, what they read, what they hear, the diversity in um the storytellers themselves, you know, um, there's just so much diversity that, you know, you just, when you write your book, and I tell this to everyone who comes to me as a student or a peer, is this, you write your story, and whether it gets read by the old aunt down the road, or whether it gets read by the country or translated in 10 languages, it's nobody's business. That story came through you. It was looking for space in the concrete world. It was looking to be the philosopher's stone for you. And once you bring it into being, your role is done. What happens to it after that is none of your business. And whether you find a publisher or whether they fight over you or whether it just goes self-published, that's the fate of the story. But you had to bring it into the world. So that is how I feel about judges, and awards. Yeah, it's good. I love that. I love I love that reference to the Philosopher's Stone, the thing yeah. that's going to guide you, right? Yes, yeah. it, 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 that's how I look at it. Each one of these books, is, it was seeking me. It, that story came through me. Now, you've been frank in this discussion and, of course, um, elsewhere in Pluck about uh, your mental health struggles. Yeah. And um, I know it was really important for me to read about some of that uh, when I was reading Pluck, particularly because I kept thinking, um, you know, after your brother's death, I thought, how is this family going to to manage? 
right? That was my question. And so while I don't mean I'm glad that you had mental health struggles, I mean, I'm glad that you wrote about the the real life of um, of PTSD as it manifested in in you. We're still just starting to have those kinds of conversations in public, yes. Yes. right? It, it's been regarded as a private matter for so long yeah. that it, it takes many people telling that story over and over again and saying, this is a part of existence, right? Now, um, do you speak about that in, in, in person on in, in speaking gigs or do you? Oh, um, I start every gig by saying I take these pills for public speaking and these ones are flying and these ones for digestion. Yeah, I speak really openly because when I was going through all of that and it never goes away, it's always there somewhere, but you know, you find pharmaceuticals that really can give you back your life. And I am the poster child for pharmaceuticals. 25 years now since that breakdown. And I have not missed a day. I'm not a junkie, I'm not an addict, I'm not nothing. It's like taking, well, actually it's easier than taking an aspirin. Aspirin can hurt you. But you know, pharmaceuticals, when they are matched to your illness is a godsend. I mean, you know, we've learned things, take advantage of what's out there. But when I was going through that dark, dark place, I understood instantly. Day one into it, it's like, oh my God, this is why people do it. This is why people take their lives. I, it was like, I, I suddenly had a portal through a world that I didn't know existed. It's like, I now understand so much terror, fear, why people do this. It's like, I have been given a ticket into this world, but I don't, I don't want to be here, you know, and I couldn't get out of it. I was a modern woman. I was living in a city with psychiatrists, psychologists, and doctors. I was intelligent. And even when I was going to university and studying this stuff, I was still unable to find a way out of it, you know, uh, in terms of cures or drugs. I was still living in fear. And my big thought was, how do these people who live under the radar, mm -hmm. who live out in the country or in the wilderness or, you know, without education, how do they survive this? I, I'm reading books. I'm reading about it. I'm looking at the labels. I'm looking at, you know, what can be done, what I can find. I'm, I'm finding help in little bits and little pieces. But how do they find it? And, you know, that crippled me knowing that so many people have what I have but they've got nowhere to go with it except live it in silence you know and so when I was writing this I wrote openly totally and fully and when I'm asked about it I talk about it totally openly and fully because I want to tell you I want to tell whoever is listening you don't have to suffer alone there are millions of us in this with you, and there's help. You can find help for this, and it can be better. Thank you. That's that's uh, very valuable. I, I I love to hear that. I want to give you another opportunity to read something from from Pluck or from from whatever you wish. Seems how I'm coming to Waterloo, and seems how you are going to be giving me through your generosity. This time to work on my story of my father. I took a piece I would like to read. So nobody has heard this. It's a premiere. Yeah. All right. So this is a story told to me by my brother. And I wrote it. 
And again, it is after our mother has died and our father is filled with grief. And uh, this is a story of my brother, Tommy, talking about a moment in the past when our brother got killed. We started losing our father to, to grief and alcoholism. Daddy, daddy, daddy. Did you know it was my birthday when it happened? That I was 12 and thinking about a party and fishing on the river. Dad, dad, daddy. Did you see how skinny my arms were, reaching for something to cling to when the news struck through our house like a lightning bolt that our brother was dead, leaving nothing behind but whipped black cinders as it burned itself out? I sat on the red shag carpet every Saturday night after watching you tip back the bottle as you watched the endless hockey games, tipping back the bottle, tipping it back harder with each hour passing, each game. Our mom, my mom, she never seemed to notice your drinking, not at first anyway. She used to mix herself a drink and sit with you. Then times she came out of her bedroom by the time she did notice, you were already gone, linked into a chain of your own making. But she never thought of something she couldn't break. I watched her all the time, going at it with a maul, trying to break it. You watch out for him too, she said to me, most every day, growing weary with her hammer, growing weary with trying to keep our dad from drinking my dad from drinking. And the both of us, me and my mom, we snooped and poked around dad. We found your whiskey and beer bottles hidden behind the couch and in the flush box of the toilet and under a dugout sod in the yard and in the shed and in the garage and the toolbox and the water jug and the wood box and your rubber boot and plastic garbage bags behind the house. Behind the skidoo, the seat of the truck, behind the spare tires, behind everything. We found your bottles behind everything. Too many behinds for us to keep up with. And when we did find them, they were always emptied. Then all the arguing started. About the waste of money, a waste of time, waste of energy trying to keep you from falling over at the dances and the dark games. And you going off with the young fellows. Drinking, she became a mosquito whirring in your ear. Nurk, nurk, don't drink, don't drink, stop. And I was a mosquito too, whirring in your ear. Daddy, daddy, let's go trapping. Let's go snare some rabbits, daddy. Take me moose hunting, teach me to shoot, teach me to hunt moose, dad, dad, daddy. But you never heard me. And you never heard her. And the arguing turned into fighting. Wood splintering from your fist going through the walls. Her screaming as though you were hitting her. But you never did. You would never hit her. And I knew that. But I still got scared. And I'd run from my house and get, I'd run from my room and get between you and her as she tried to get between you and the walls. Between you and your rage, your hurt, between you and God as you bawled out Forty's name. And then one night, you swiped me aside like a stick doll, 
and the look on your face when you thought you hurt me. You hadn't, you hadn't. But your chain took you down then. You clung to my legs. You clung to a mom's and you cried. You cried so hard you gagged and the relief on mom's face. She believed you freed from your cage finally. Perhaps you did too. But you left this door open behind you. Daddy, daddy, daddy. Thank you for reading that. Thank you for that 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 world premiere. Um, do you have a working title for your for this new manuscript? No, not yet. No, I call I call it uh, Pluck Two, as in my father having plucked two, but um, mm -hmm. it will not last because yeah. it's, uh, it's going to become a work of fiction. When you get down to something like this, you know, you sometimes you need a character to carry it for you, and I think this is one of those stories. Yeah, indeed. Well, I look forward to having you uh, join us in Waterloo and to hear more about uh, the development of this clearly very urgent project and um, of your work between using uh, these non-fictional stories and fictionalizing or dramatizing them as, as the case yeah. may be. And so I want to thank you for being on uh, Watershed Writers this episode and, and for this wonderful conversation uh, about your passion, uh, your writing and uh, what you're going to do as the Edna Stabler writer in residence at Wilfrid Laurier University over the next couple of months. Donna Morrissey is going to be in Waterloo until the end of March. Uh, she is uh, taking consultation appointments and I want to make sure that our listeners know that they are cordially invited to your talk finding a way a journey of self-discovery which will be held on thursday january 26th at seven o'clock the waterloo laurier campus in the hawk's nest and you can contact me if you want more details about that Anna Morrissey's Pluck is available wherever fine literature is sold. I encourage you to buy your books at your local independent bookseller in Waterloo. That is Wordsworth Books. In Cambridge, it is the brand new Rookery Books. And if you're buying books in Guelph, that is at the bookshelf. We've been talking with Donna Morrissey multiple award-winning author of novels, screenplays, and memoir. Donna will be in Waterloo from January 28th to March 24th. And if you want to drop her an email and book an appointment with her to talk about your writing, your work in progress, you can do so. Email this address, domorrissey at wlu.ca. That is D-O-M-O-R-R-I s-s-e-y at wlu.ca or come to her in-person public talk to kick off her residency on January 26th. That's a Thursday at 7.15 p.m. Donna will be speaking at Wilfrid Laurier University in the venue known as the Hawk's Nest. It's located on the top floor of the Fred Nichols Concourse Building. The event is free, live, in-person, and everyone welcome. Need more information? You can email me at tmcdonald at wlu.ca. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Watershed Writers. We have more in store for the new year, including Laurie Graham's poetry and Coral Andrews' new memoir about her time at the Backdoor nightclub in Kitchener. 
Watershed Writers comes to you every Saturday at 10 a.m. here on Midtown Radio. And if you miss an episode or just want to listen again, we've got your back. You can catch up with our episodes posted to SoundCloud. And let me tell you, there are a lot of them. Where are the writers? They are right here in Grand River Region, and we want to talk to all of them one at a time. Watershed Writers is produced in partnership with the Idea Exchange and the Waterloo Public Library. We are a team of three. Francis Riley is the show producer, John Roscoe is our technical wizard, and I am Tannis McDonald, your interview host. Our theme music is Water by the Kitchener singer-songwriter Alicia Brilla. Join us again next week to listen locally and think global.